Mark 14. We're going to be studying today Mark 14, 12 through 26. Mark 14. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 14, or pardon me, Mark 14, verse 12 through 26. This is the word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. May God give us ears to hear his word. It seems as if people instinctively want to be desired or want to be remembered after they die. Have you seen evidence of this? Uh, maybe you've thought about this yourself, how you desire to be remembered after you die. It really seems as if this is a longing within us that we can't escape. You might think, for instance, of tombstones and how for at least the last thousand years, even up to this very day, when people die, they want some sort of tombstone marking where they're buried. And the entire idea is that we're hoping people remember me, at least for a little while. You could think of how people often give large amounts of money to, say, charities or hospitals or universities. They start these endowments in part because they hope to be remembered after they're dead. You could think of people writing their memoirs, writing their autobiographies, uh, assuming that people want to remember them after they're gone. As a nation, we've done this countless times for great leaders, be it the Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial. Think of something like the eternal flame they created for JFK. We want something that we can look at, hold, touch, to remember people after they're gone. Am I right? Now, in the case of Jesus, he too had this desire to be remembered after he was dead, but in a very tangible way, a way we can touch and feel and even taste. And it's very interesting that in Jesus' case, the way in which he wanted to be remembered was not by a tombstone. Obviously, he's not in the tomb. He's resurrected. And Jesus wouldn't be remembered by a building built somewhere, a cathedral. 
Now, as strange as it might seem, the way in which Jesus desired to be remembered after he was gone was through a meal, a simple meal called the Lord's Supper. That's the only tangible memorial we have of our Savior until he comes again. This is what Jesus meant in Luke twenty-two nineteen when he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the Lord's Supper is going to be very much central to what we're going to be talking about and even doing this morning. We're going to be talking about where the Lord's Supper came from, what it means, how to take advantage of it, and Lord willing, at the end of the service today, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper together. But as we go through all of this, what I want you to realize is that this is how Jesus wants to be remembered. Through the simple breaking of bread and pouring out a grape juice, this is how Jesus desires to be memorialized. Not a tombstone, not a statue, not stained glass windows, but simple elements that Christians all around the world can observe and have observed for the last 2,000 years. This is what we do in remembrance of him. Now, if you're not there already, turn with, turn with me to Mark 14. And to begin with, let's put Mark 14, 12 and following in context. Uh, and I want you to think about where this event takes place in the final week of Jesus' life. You may realize this already, but about half of the entire Gospel of Mark is taken up with Jesus' final week sometimes called his Passion Week. So where does this event, Mark 14, 12, and following, take place during that week? Well, if we put the pieces together, Mark 14, 12, and following take place on the Thursday of Passion Week, and more specifically, on the evening of that Thursday. Just to remind you of the events of this week, it's on the Sunday, the first Sunday of this week, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey with the crowds crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. On the Monday of that week, Jesus throws the money changers out of the temple, and he says, you won't turn my father's house into a den of thieves. On the Tuesday and the Wednesday of that week, Jesus has numerous debates and really arguments with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes over a whole variety of matters. And this results in Jesus finally renouncing Judaism as an apostate religion. If you've read the Gospels, you're surely familiar with some of these events. It's on Friday of this week that Jesus will be arrested, tried, and then nailed to the cross. He'll be in the ground all day long on Saturday, but then on Sunday, resurrection morning, that's when he's raised again from the dead. So again, Mark 14, 12, and following, what we're looking at this morning, takes place on the Thursday of that very busy week. Keep that in mind. And something I want you to realize, as we're talking about the Lord's Supper, the cross is about, what, 18 hours away? And Jesus knows it's coming. He's prophesied it many times. He knows he's going to be nailed hand and foot to that cross of wood where he's going to bleed for us in our salvation. That's about 18 hours away. He knows that's coming as he gives us the Lord's Supper. Well, keeping that context in mind, the first thing I'd like us to consider from this passage is preparing the Passover. Notice with me how Jesus and his disciples prepare to eat the Passover together. Now look at verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now pause there. As you can see, the Passover is very vital to this entire section. The term Passover is used several times, and without understanding a little bit about what the Passover is, the passage isn't going to make sense. So let's spend just a little bit of time talking about what the Passover is. Now the holiday of the Passover, it goes way back to when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Uh, you'll remember that for 400 years, the people of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh, making bricks without straw, approximately 1800 B.C. to 1400 B.C. But then the people cry out for deliverance. God raises up Moses. Moses goes to Israel, or, uh, Egypt. 
performs these plagues. These plagues humble Pharaoh. They finally break his will, and he releases the people of, e uh, of Israel out of Egypt. Familiar with these events? You've probably seen the Ten Commandments, I hope. Israel then goes and wanders around the desert for 40 years before they enter Canaan. And what you need to remember is that just before they leave Egypt, God gives them one last plague, the death of the firstborn. God says, I'm going to go through Egypt and I'm going to strike down all the firstborn sons, except for those houses where the blood is. On those houses where the blood has been applied to the doorpost and the lintel, I'm going to pass over and not strike those children dead. Now that event is where the Passover came from. And even the word Passover, it's referring to the angel passing over the house and not killing the children. From that came this celebration that Jews have celebrated for thousands of years right up to this very day, this Passover meal commemorating what God did to redeem the people of Israel out of Egypt. Summarizing the significance of the Passover, the International Bible Encyclopedia says this, the Exodus was the redemptive event par excellence in the life of God's covenant people. The Passover reenacted annually the greatest miracle Jehovah performed out of his grace for his chosen. It was to become the focal point of Jewish history. The Passover celebration retold the story of freedom after more than 400 years of Egyptian bondage. The frequent Old Testament allusions to that deliverance indicate that it was a source of hope for the nation's future redemption. If you've got Jewish friends, you'll know that this is still a really big deal to the Jewish people. And every year they have a Passover celebration where they get together and they have this, it's probably comparable to Thanksgiving, this long meal. And throughout it, there are all these different elements that are designed to remind them of what God did in the Exodus. You'll remember they take bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of their suffering in Egypt. They'll eat a lamb, reminding them of the lamb that was sacrificed. And they don't put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel anymore, but that was a reminder of that. And as the ceremony goes on, the head of the household is to retell the story of the Exodus again and again, kind of communicating through ritual how significant this event was in the people of God. One last detail, and this is actually going to be important for understanding the passage we're looking at. Throughout the Passover celebration, they sang psalms. And they specifically sang Psalms 113 through 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms. Uh, just maybe store that in the back of your mind because we'll come back to it later. Now, as you can see from your passage, it's right in the middle of the Passover that Jesus will be crucified. Uh, Passover kind of began on, on Thursday night, but then it continued for a week. And it's during that Passover week that Jesus is crucified. Now, why might that be significant? I mean, maybe ponder that just for a second. Why is it significant that Jesus is crucified during this Passover celebration? Well, all of this is significant because Jesus wanted the Passover to be something like a prophecy of what Jesus would do. You ever thought about that? All these elements that were at first commemorating the Exodus are transformed almost into prophecies of Jesus. The, the pure lamb representing Jesus, the spotless lamb of God. The fact that the lamb's bones couldn't be broken how Jesus wouldn't have any of his bones broken when he's hanging on the cross. The blood applied to the doorpost and the lintel. Again, it's the blood of Jesus applied to the hearts of those who believe. The entire Passover celebration was, in, a, in effect, an acted prophecy of what Jesus would do. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're delighted you're here. Seriously, thank you for coming. We're always honored to have guests. But if that's the case, I'd be curious to talk to you about what you think of this sort of prophecy embedded in the Passover celebration. 
I mean, how'd that happen? I mean, it, it seems pretty clear. I mean, bones, no broken blood. I mean, it seems to be pretty clearly sort of a prophecy of Jesus, but how does that happen if the Bible's not the Word of God? How does that happen if Jesus is not the Son of God? I'd be really interested in talking to you about this if you've got thoughts on that. Now, with this background in mind, let's look at our passage here. And again, let's begin with verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to, the, said, said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, as you can see, here we have the circumstances of Jesus and his disciples preparing to eat that Passover. His disciples say, where are we going to go to prepare this? Jesus says, go to the city. You'll find this guy with a jar of water. He'll take you to this other place, and that's where you're going to set things up for the Passover. Now, as we read these verses, it's pretty clear that Jesus hasn't arranged these details beforehand. You know, it's not as if he, the day before, went in and found this guy with a jar of water and set things up at this house. He hasn't sort of arranged it in that sense, and yet somehow he knows exactly that these events will come to pass so that they can have the Passover there. What I want to emphasize, though, is that it's actually more than that. It's not just that Jesus knows there will be a guy that's carrying a jar of water, and he knows there'll be a house where they can have the Passover. What I want you to see here is actually an evidence of the sovereignty of Jesus. He is sovereignly controlling these events. He wants that guy with the jar of water to be there. So he ordains that the guy with the jar of water to be there. He, he wants to have the Passover in that house. So he ordains in his sovereignty that that house is available. You see what I'm trying to say? Behind the scenes, Jesus is controlling all that's taking place throughout Passion Week so that everything comes to pass according to God's sovereign plan. I realize that this is not the way we often look at the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. We often think of it as almost coincidental happenstances, like Jesus almost just got in trouble or something like that. You know, it just so happened that he got arrested, and it just so happened that he got beaten, and it just so happened that he was crucified on Passover weekend. That's not the way the Bible presents it at all. The Bible presents it as if Jesus is the master conductor orchestrating all of these things to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill God's plan, so that we would have a powerful demonstration of the glory of God. Jesus taught us this earlier in John 10, 18. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Just think about that. Even as sinful men drove Hand, a door of nails through his hands and his feet, Jesus is still in charge. He's still calling the shots. They could only do what he permitted them to do. And he did that for us and our salvation. Never, brothers and sisters, look at the events of the gospel story as plan B. Never look at these as just interesting coincidences that God used to save us. No, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And everything we're looking at this morning will take place according to the plan of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And when you realize that our God works that way, isn't he a God that we can trust? I mean, if God can take these horrible, evil events and work them together for his glory and our good, isn't he a God that you can trust? 
is. Well, moving on, consider with me next celebrating the Passover. We've seen just a few details about how they prepared the Passover. Let's talk now about how they celebrate the Passover. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, as the Passover ceremony is going on, Jesus sort of interrupts it with some shocking news. And this would not have been part of the original Passover script. I mean, the original Passover had this script where you retell the story of the Exodus, but Jesus sort of hits pause on that, and he gives them some very shocking, frightening news. One of you, one of my best friends, is about to betray me. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll know how previously Judas had gone to the Jewish leaders, and he had brokered a deal. Uh, the Jews have been looking to arrest Jesus. They're looking for an opportunity to trap him. Judas apparently is looking for a little bit of money, and he brokers a deal. I will give you Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And as you can see here, Jesus knows all of that beforehand. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. And, and look at what he says there. It is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Judas is sitting right there when he says this. So Judas knows he's going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray Jesus. And here Jesus lets the disciples know before any of it happens. And look at the disciples' response. I find this interesting. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? They're all wondering, is it going to be me? Am I going to be the one to turn you in? Now, the only comment I'll make on this verse is how it is a healthy thing to be suspicious of your own heart. You believe that? It is a healthy thing to be suspicious of your heart. These disciples, they knew the Lord. They were, we would call them converted people. They had no plans of betraying Jesus, and yet they understood enough about the human heart to realize that it might be me. I might be the one to fall. You see, true disciples understand that the human heart is, in the words of Jeremiah 17:9, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Our hearts contain within them the seeds of every conceivable sin, which is why we need to watch and pray, why we need to stay on our guard, why we need to beware that we stand firm lest we fall. The moment you assume you cannot commit adultery or cannot become a drunk or cannot neglect your kids or cannot get lazy at work, that's probably the day before you fall. So let us pray one another. For, for one another, that we watch and pray, that we stay alert, that we stay on guard, because our hearts can so easily betray us. Now, look with me at the way in which Jesus interprets Judas' betrayal. This is interesting. Verse 21. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, there are a couple of things that I'd say about this verse here. First, you'll notice how it's written beforehand that Judas would betray Jesus. This is probably an allusion to Psalm 41.9. Uh, speaking of the rejection of the Messiah, it says in Psalm 41.9, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. But what's more than that, I also want you to think of the way in which Judas' betrayal here is, again, part of the sovereign plan of God. 
I mean, this surprises us. Again, this challenges our ways of thinking. But even Judas' betrayal, as evil as it was, was part of the plan of God. This comes out even clearer in the Luke parallel. In Luke 22, 22, Jesus says this, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. So all of this is the plan of God. But does that in any way diminish Judas's responsibility? Not at all. For what does he say? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. What we're getting at here, brothers and sisters, is really the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The entire Bible presents these twin truths in parallel as really friends that don't contradict one another. Uh, they're not two truths that cancel one another out, but they're both taught throughout Scripture. God is completely, totally sovereign. Again, not a hair falls from your head that he doesn't weave together for his plan. But at the same time, humans are totally responsible for their actions, will bear the consequences for their actions, sometimes into eternity. Now again, in our flesh, we want to try to deny one or the other. We say either God is sovereign or humans are responsible. But again, that's not the way that the Bible presents it. The same Bible that teaches us, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his own will, also says, Joshua 24.15, choose this day whom you will serve. Now, how precisely these ideas hold together is mysterious, and I doubt finite humans, as puny as we are, will ever really get it. But if we're going to be biblical Christians, we need a theology that's big enough to encompass both, because both are clearly taught in Scripture. Well, coming back to our passage, one more comment I'd make about verse 21. Look at the end of verse 21. It would have been better for that man, talking about Judas, if he had not been born. Now just ponder for a moment what that phrase implies. I mean, what does it mean to have never been born? Uh, there are really only two options. I mean, there's non-existence, he was never conceived of in the first place, or maybe death in the womb. Those are really the only two options. But Jesus is saying that either of those would have been better than what Judas is about to experience for what he has done. Are you following me so far? What I would contend is that this verse demands some sort of severe punishment for Judas after his death. I mean, obviously, if Judas, after death, goes into non-existence, that's not worse than non-existence. There must be something terrifying that's coming Judas's way because of what he has done. To get at what I'm saying is that Jesus here is clearly implying the reality of hell. A doctrine we hate to think about, a doctrine that does terrify us, a doctrine that a lot of people want to rip out of the Bible, but this statement makes no sense if there's not a terrifying hell awaiting Judas after his death. Describing this place in vivid detail, Revelation 14.10 says this, They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and, the, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. As terrifying as it is to say, that's what Judas is experiencing right now. Just as sure as you're sitting in those chairs right now, Judas is in the eternal fire, in unspeakable torment. And yes, that is the fate of all who do not put their faith in the Lord Jesus. This is what it means, that it would have been better for that man to have not been born. Well, consider with me lastly, 
transforming the Passover. We've seen Jesus prepare the Passover. We've seen him celebrate the Passover. Let's talk now about transforming the Passover. Again, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now again, if we're imagining this scene properly, Jesus and his disciples, they're going through the Passover ceremony, and yet again, Jesus breaks with the script. He kind of interrupts. First he tells them that Judas is going to betray him, but then all of a sudden he gives everything a different meaning. You know, the cups and the bread that used to signify the cups and the bread of the Passover, now all of a sudden he's giving them a new significance. That unleavened bread that used to remind them of the unleavened bread they carried with them out of Egypt, now this is my body. That cup of wine that used to signify the joy of being freed from Egypt, now this is the blood of, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What I need you to see here is that Jesus is redefining the central event in the life of the people of God. He's redefining their attention away from the Exodus, as glorious as that was, to now a new event, something he's going to accomplish for us in our salvation on the cross. Now we're to define ourselves not primarily by a literal re uh, redemption out of Egypt, but by a spiritual redemption from death, sin, and the devil. Now, because of so much of what's happened in church history and church tradition, i got to say a word about that phrase, this is my body. As you probably know, throughout history and even up to this day, there are many groups out there that want to take this strictly literally, like seriously literally, like Jesus means the bread turns into his literal flesh and blood. Some go even further and teach that when we eat the Lord's Supper, that's a re, like a, a re-crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus is being crucified anew. Uh, you, you heard of this idea before? Well, what should we say about it? Well, I believe, honestly, that this idea is absolutely absurd for many reasons. But let me just give you two from this very passage. First, the bread and the wine, they could not be Jesus' literal flesh and blood, in large part because Jesus is still sitting right there in front of them. I mean, Jesus' blood is still in his veins. Jesus' flesh is still on his skeleton. And I think we've got to give the disciples enough common sense to realize that there's no way that he's talking literally about the bread turning into flesh and the wine turning into blood. But a second and more important reason, remember that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover. The Passover, like I said, is a memorial feast. It's reminding them of what God did in the Exodus. Uh, it doesn't reaccomplish the Exodus. It reminds them of the Exodus. So Jesus and his disciples, they're already thinking in this kind of memorial way. So Jesus is just taking that memorial feast and giving it a new significance. He's not talking anything about bread turning into flesh or anything like that. No, when Jesus says, this is my body, that would be similar to me taking out a picture of my wife and saying, this is my wife. Now, if I did that, would any of you think that I was literally married to that picture? No, I mean, you've got enough common sense to know that that represents my wife, that signifies my wife. Am I right? In a similar manner, Jesus is saying, this bread signifies my broken body. In a few hours, it's going to be broken for you and your salvation. This poured out wine. It represents my blood poured out for you. Now, the last phrase I draw your attention to is there in verse 24. Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Now, if you're familiar with the, with the Bible, that idea of pouring out of blood should be significant. This phrase is found very often in the Old Testament in conjunction with animal sacrifices. You'll remember in the Old Testament that when God's people sinned, they'd go to the priest. They'd put their hands on the head of a ram. They'd confess their sins over that ram. That ram would be slain, and then the blood poured out at the altar. And that sacrifice was sort of, again, symbolizing what Jesus would do on the cross. And Jesus is saying here that when my blood is poured out on the cross, that's the ultimate sacrifice for sins. It will be a sacrifice for atonement. My blood will be shed. But unlike the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that never definitively dealt with sin, my blood will forever pay for sins for all of my people. Now, maybe at this point you're wondering why all of this would be necessary. I mean, blood and atonement and forgiveness and confinement. What is all of this about? Well, here's why in a nutshell. It goes back to this idea that you were made to know God. Did you know that? You were made to know God, to have a relationship with him. This is why you're on this planet, to know your creator. And yet, you have sinned. I have sinned. We have sinned. We've rebelled against God. We've tried to live our own way, tried to live as if there is no God, when in reality he is a loving heavenly father who delights to care for us. And all the hundreds of ways that we break his commands are just evidence of hearts that have rejected God. Now, because God is good, he will punish us for our sins. But here's the glorious news of the Bible. He also loves us. And in his amazing love, God the Father sent his Son down to earth. God the Son, Jesus, took on flesh and walked among us. He lived a life of complete obedience to God as Heavenly Father. But then when he died on the cross, he died as a substitute, bearing the wrath of God, the punishment of God we deserved in our place. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to prove that everything that he taught was true. Jesus ascended to heaven where he is now, and one day he is coming again to judge all of us. And now he calls us, turn from your sins, embrace Jesus, be forgiven. Turn from your sins, embrace Jesus, rely on his cross, rely on his empty tomb, and be made right with God. This is the gospel that's foreshadowed in the Passover, memorialized in the Lord's Supper, and accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection. And before we go any further, I would invite you to trust Jesus right now. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, your sins cannot be forgiven. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, you remain dead in your sins and lost for eternity. What is said about Judas could be said about you. But Jesus' blood has been shed, and now forgiveness of sins and eternal life is being offered to you if you'll but turn from your sins and trust Jesus. So right now, believe on his death and resurrection, embrace his loving leadership, and be made right with God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service today. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today be made right with God. We're almost done, but notice the interesting promise Jesus makes there in verse 25. I find this fascinating. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. Now what is Jesus talking about? 
I believe Jesus is referring here to that future kingdom that he will establish after he comes again. We've been talking about this a little bit in our series in Revelation. But one day the heavens will part. Jesus will descend down from heaven. He will take his throne. He will rule and judge the nations. And then things will be done here on earth as they are done in heaven. And here Jesus is saying that it won't be until that day that I celebrate this feast with you again. All during this age, between Jesus' ascension and his return, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do it in remembrance of him, but we do it with one eye to heaven, realizing that a day is coming when he will come again and we will gather with him and eat what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think this is part of what Paul was referring to when he said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment here, we're going to eat the Lord's Supper. As we do that, keep one eye to heaven. Realize that Jesus is coming again. He is coming again to fellowship with his people, again, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Keep that in mind. Well, Jesus concludes the last Passover. And you think about it, it was a Passover like no other. It began as a celebration of the Exodus. It concludes as a memorial of what Jesus will do. Its entire meaning has been transformed from physical redemption to spiritual redemption. And look at how they wrap it up, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now it's interesting, we know what hymn they sang to conclude the Passover. And it wasn't the old rugged cross, as wonderful as that is. Like I said earlier, they sang the Hillel Psalms during the Passover. Remember I told you to keep that in the back of your mind? Throughout the Passover, they're singing these at various points. What this means is that they're singing Psalm 118 at this very point, as he's going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be betrayed. And you want to know what Psalm 118 says? Maybe hear Psalm 118 with new eyes, because we don't think of this as talking about the cross and Jesus heading to the cross, but it is. This is Psalm 118, what they would have sang. I thank you that you have answered me, and I've become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's fine to use that phrase of every day, but realize ultimately that day is the day of the cross where our salvation was secured. Well, to wrap up our time this morning, I want to give you a few suggestions for rightly appreciating the Lord's Supper. I realize that so many people find the Lord's Supper boring, dull, almost pointless, so let me give you a few quick suggestions for rightly taking advantage of the Lord's Supper. First, for those of you who are not Christians, you've not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus, or maybe it's, it's unclear, you know, you're kind of interested in Jesus, but you're not quite sure where you stand, we would kindly ask that you not eat the Lord's Supper with us today. Uh, we're not judging you. In fact, we would respect you if you not eat. But just let the pat, plate pass you by. Instead, think on what you're seeing. Think on the significance of the broken bread, the poured out grape juice, the fact that we eat and drink these, signifying our faith in Jesus. If your hope is not in Jesus, don't eat today, but instead think about what you're seeing. Well, if you're a Christian, what then can you do? Again, I struggled with finding the Lord's Supper significant for probably the first 20 years of my Christian life. Uh, but over the years, by the grace of God, I have seen the Lord do marvelous things through the Lord's Supper. Build faith, convict of sin, reconcile relationships through the simple bread and grape juice. God does marvelous things. So quickly, a few suggestions. 
First, as you take the Lord's Supper, keep your mind engaged. Now keep your brain engaged. We're doing this in remembrance. Remembrance is a mind activity. So fight as much as you can. Thinking about your cell phone, thinking about what's on TV this afternoon, thinking about what's for lunch, you know, Thanksgiving leftovers. Fight that as much as possible and keep your brain engaged thinking about what we're doing. Second, confess and forsake any known sin. Confess and forsake any known sin. Maybe even walk through something like the Ten Commandments and confess these areas where you've sinned and broken God's laws. Confess them, claim the blood of Jesus, but then forsake them. Third, make sure you're right with other brothers and sisters. Make sure you're right with other brothers and sisters. This is the big point of 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, if you're at odds with other brothers and sisters and you haven't done what you can to be reconciled with them, it's not time to take Lord's Supper. Time to go get right with them, but it's not time to take the Lord's Supper. So insofar as it depends on you, try and be right with other brothers and sisters. Fourth, fourthly, prayerfully think on what Jesus' death accomplished. As you hold that little piece of bread, as you hold that little cup of grape, grape juice, prayerfully think on what Jesus' death accomplished. If you're a believer, he poured out his blood for you. If you're a Christian, his body was torn for you. You see, though your sins are so bad, they require Jesus to die for you. Jesus loves you so much, he was glad to die for you. Remind yourself of that during this meal. And then finally, if you've done what I've already said, joyfully partake with confidence. Joyfully partake with confidence. I've seen sort of different trends with the Lord's Supper. You got the entire trend of people being indifferent, which is unfortunate, but common. But then you've got another trend of people being kind of terrified of it, which, if you understand 1 Corinthians 11, is appropriate because you fool around with it, God can take your life. But don't let that drive you away. If you've dealt with known sin, if your hope is in Jesus, if you've done what you can to be right with other Christians, partake boldly. Partake with joy that our God is a God who loves to fellowship with sinners. Partake with confidence. The Lord's Supper is the way in which Jesus wants to be remembered. Not through buildings, not through movies, not through stained glass windows, but in simple, broken bread and poured out grape juice. So now as we come, let us as a congregation remember Jesus in the way that he taught us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you use it to build our faith, to renew our minds, and to make us more like your Son. Help us now, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Give us grace to keep our brains engaged, to think deeply in what you have done for us, to confess and forsake our sins, and yet to eat it joyfully, rejoicing in what you've done for us in our salvation. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.